Welcome to Project Update, a podcast about the projects we're working on or not. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? <sighs> doing really good, Joe. How you doing? Mm, been better. Had a mm. good weekend, but yeah, we'll get to that a little later. Okay. So what's going on with uh, FM Perception? Well, uh, I've been doing kind of weekly releases to you. Mm. Um it lets me get a fair amount done. It, it's a it's a sizable update, um, and I'm not revising the ERD on you like daily, which I think is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the fact that like between build, sign, release notes, and updating and polishing the ERD, it takes thirty to forty five minutes to do a release. Yeah. Uh, granted, part of that is because there's so much in the release, so there's a lot of release notes to do, and the ERD takes some revision. But um, I, I don't necessarily want to start taking that hit on a daily basis if I can help it, at least for now. Mm-hmm. But I was curious to see what you thought of that. If that was too many releases, do you want to see like every two weeks or too few? You want me to do like a Wednesday update and a Sunday update or something like that? I don't think it needs to be scheduled per se. I think it's just when it makes sense to roll out a, like if you're working on a bunch of stuff that doesn't affect what I'm doing, then Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. You you could go months without releasing (laughs) something. But if I'm waiting on, like I need the values populated in this column in this table, then I would say the sooner the better. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's nothing in the current process that stops that. It's just been weird that the last three or four weeks around about Sunday night. I'm kind of ready to do a release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw it last night. I haven't even looked at it yet. I have not even been in my office yet today. So sitting in the living room recording on the windows laptop. So there is no windows version of FM perception yet or FM perception next. So yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be on the list sometime soon. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the big stuff recently, um, I added, one of those concepts that drives you nuts. I, I've decided to coin the term Trulian, mm. which is a Boolean that has three possible values. Um, and, and also, so basically going through the data store and making all the Booleans and numeric values nullable. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem I was running into is there are values like in a statically typed system like C sharp, um, a Boolean is true or false. Yeah. That's it. Um, and there are just certain spots that it doesn't entirely make sense. The easiest example I can think of is like, is this field indexed? Well, if it is indexed, that's a yes. And if it isn't indexed, that's a no. But on a global field, it's not really in the same category as no. I mean, yes, it isn't indexed, but the very concept of indexing is irrelevant for a Mm. global field. My main problem with Trulians is the name. (laughs) So Booleans are named for George Bool, who invented base two math or popularized it. I'm not sure. I'm sure humans have been thinking about that for a while, but we get that 
that word bull or bullion from him. So I think you should name it after you rather than as a pun, which is my territory. <laughs> yeah, George Bull just very conveniently had a B for a two-state thing as the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not really going to continue calling them trillions. I, I mean, I, I call them heresy, but <laughs> call them what you want. Sacrilege. An it, affront. Ac- it actually got worse with the number values than mm-hmm. the Booleans is that I had no ability to actually record a blank for a number value. Mm-hmm. And I could do zero. I started playing with negative one or maybe negative field state max, which would be like 99 trillion or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that that's a thing, but there's no easy way to differentiate that from real data. Yeah. And so. And partly it's, we're in a weird combination of, you're working in C-sharp, so you've got C-sharp object types to work with, but you're also working with SQLite, so you've got SQLite types to work with. And then we're working with JavaScript. And JavaScript. So we're going to convert those. <laughs> and so you need to take your your XML data, turn it into types you can work with in the program, and then put that into a type that can be shoved in the database. Uh-huh. You don't have to retranslate it from there, but the JavaScript side has to be able to understand that type that's stored in the database. Yeah. So, which is kind of a a weird way of thinking about that, but, but yeah, to go straight from the database into JavaScript without the intermediary layer like PHP, yeah. is kind of weird. It, it turned out to be really easy because all the tables are defined in a single file, mm-hmm. so I could go through and say make all the integers into nullable integers, and mm-hmm. make all of the booleans into nullable booleans, and that was pretty much a find and replace and it was done yeah um, and the booleans in sqlite are just ones and zeros instead of true and false right correct so there would be null zero and one correct which is a you know there are lots of things in filemaker where it is a boolean yes or no value but never having selected a value is also a value which is you know, this thing can be toggled on or off, but what if the user has never checked either one? Right. Thing. Yeah. Most of that stuff should be covered in the UI of those controls, but not all of it works that way. Yeah. Uh, I added a CSS parser for Hmm. parsing the CSS properties and selectors out of the themes, styles, and like layout objects. It should allow me to generate aggregate CSS for layout objects. Mm-hmm. Um, in my head, I'm seeing a UI kind of like the web inspector of being able to say like, these parts are coming from the object, these parts are coming from the style, and these parts are coming from the theme. Mm-hmm. And you'd be able to see kind of the whole thing in aggregate which I think would be really, really slick and I don't think has been done with FileMaker analysis before. Yeah. Um, but I haven't connected all the dots yet. 
<laughs> so it's kind of currently just theoretical. The, the weird part is that the theme does not explicitly have any CSS of its own. Mm-hmm. The theme is entirely composed of styles. It's just that somewhere in that big pile of styles is going to be a base style for that theme for that kind of object. Yeah. And so it's actually layout object to style specific to style that is generalized for that layout object. And connecting those dots is a little weird. I'm going to get there, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not there yet. Um, and then the big one was calculation parsing. Remember that parser we talked about an eon or two ago? Yeah. It's, kind of it's the beginning of the show. <laughs> um, it is finally integrated. So this was the antler parser that you started working on in DevCon just after DevCon 2019. I think you lost the rest of 2019 to it. Yeah. Um, so all that source code has been, the, the source code generated by the parser has just been sitting there waiting for me. Hmm. And it took me about a day to wire it in and get it all working. And then a week to actually do anything useful with it. <laughs> Cause it's spitting out and going, we're finding all these interesting things in these calculations. And I said, I don't have any idea what to do with those yet. Yeah. Um, so that was basically the entire week. My entire last week was, okay, I got all these weird things. Now what to do with them? And so, yeah, it's, it's working pretty well. Um, I had to populate some temporary tables in SQLite, hmm. which I'm not thrilled about. It's like there's, there's whenever possible, I'd like to keep the database to being just, um, just the real information, the final information. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do ins- inserts and retrieval when the data is not going to be retained long-term or useful to the user. Yeah. There's space concerns. There's some time concerns. And some of this I may be able to rework, but I had so many different kind of classes of things that I was working with that it was becoming difficult to kind of cache those in a multi-threaded environment. And so just saying, okay, the database is a bin and I can fill this bin from all over the place. And then later I will come back and find all the things that were put in the bins and process them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also got some ideas that in the post-processing code, I can drop some tables, mm. you know, just kill them off. The user will never see them unless they interrupted the process somehow. So that's kind of the current strategy but we'll see um, those on the, the relationship on the entity relationship diagram. Those are the yellow tables. I'm like, you, you don't need these. The users don't need these, but I need these pretty badly right now. So we'll see what happens there. The other thing that's a little weird about the process is right now, every time I come across a calculation, I'm parsing it mm-hmm. and that is a perfectly adequate process, but it makes it very difficult for me to tell how much time is being consumed 
by the parser across the entire process. Yeah, maybe instead of parsing them when you find them, just add them to a queue of some sort. Mm -hmm. Crunch through all of them at the same time. Yeah. The biggest problem there is when you're parsing the calculation, it's not just about the calculation. There's a lot of context to parsing that calculation. What mm -hmm. field are we in? What table are we in? What's the base table occurrence for this thing? What file are we in? Which calculation is this? And the more data I add to that queue, the longer or the, the, the more memory that consumes. Mm -hmm. And so doing it while I've got the field definition resident in memory makes that really easy. But I don't know objectively how much time the parser is consuming. Now, the other really cool part about this is on the, the timeline where Claris eventually parses these calculations for us, there's... 20 lines of code that I have to rip out and that will destroy references to another 400 lines of code, but mm -hmm. 20 lines of code that I rip out and replace with use whatever Claris has provided mm -hmm. and all the rest of it will continue working. Nothing else weird happens. So yeah, but that's going to depend upon whether they're parsing the calculations with the detail that we want. Um, so I, I, I need a, a real uh, sanity check here. <laughs> so currently the parser generates references to, and I'm tracking references in the thing to all the classics, fields, table occurrences, custom functions, standard function, plugin functions, global variables, and you know any of those things that have missing or broken references. And I've got a couple of administrative ones. One is error. So when my parser can't figure out what to do with something, it generates a reference to an error node. So mm -hmm. we'd be able to backtrack that to this particular field definition has a calculation which is not being properly assessed by the parser. We can tell the user about that, possibly even provide some guidance for fixing it. Because in a lot of the cases that I'm bumping into, it's literally because the calculation definition is broken in some bizarrely weird way. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's an, an undetermined type, which is more for me while testing, which is we found a thing. It's a real thing. I have no idea what the heck this is. <laughs> this is a word. I, yeah. I can't resolve this word. But then I've also got these other new things that I can do because I wrote my own parser. So we've got global variables, but I can also do local variables and let variables. Mm -hmm. I can do comments. Like here's a list of all the comments in your system. Here's a list of all the strings in all the calculations. Um, and I also got uh, numbers. So integers and decimal values, and then operators. So plus, minus, not, and X or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the point is, is there any real value to that? 
like I can manufacture value in my head <laughs> to being able to go through and say, how many different places have I manually coded a different value for pi? Well, I used 3.14 here and 14159 in these six cases and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or with strings, let me quickly see if in any of the calculations anywhere, I hard-coded this particular password. Yeah. Now, I could manually run a search for that, but just being able to say, here's all the strings in the thing. I don't know. It, it, in my head, part of it is I, I'm doing it because I have the data and it's available. <laughs> but I don't know whether that's rational yeah i mean i don't have an answer for you none of this works like none of the entities you describe have anything to do with what i'm working on mm -hmm. in terms of presenting the ui for calculations um so if we need to make an additional layer where you drill into like if you want to do system-wide like show me all of the strings and all the calculations in the system I don't know who needs that. Maybe somebody does. If you want to show a table of all of these parse calculations with multiple columns for each one of these things you talked about and be able to use you know, the grid columns to sort and order stuff by that to try to find weird patterns, something like that might be useful. I have no idea. Okay. Um, this is one of those things that I, I don't have any real useful thing until we actually make UI that uses this type of data because trying to think about it abstractly just isn't really helpful. Okay. Like, well, then we'll wait. I mean, the, yeah. the cool part is effectively the UI for all of these things, when you're looking at it as a general list of objects, the mm -hmm. UI is basically the same. Mm -hmm. The, you know, list of references to a standard function yeah. is basically the same as for a plugin function or for a global variable or that kind of thing. So but I, th I think FM perception, at least FM perception next is already a departure because when I think of trying to find something in a database, I'm looking for FileMaker objects and mm -hmm. calculations are not FileMaker objects in that sense. They're attached right. to FileMaker objects, but you don't just, you know, command shift C to open the calculation engine and just start writing mm -hmm. calculations in the void. They're always attached to something. Yeah. And we we actually have a feature to be able to view them, view calculations from their side of the relationship and see all the stuff they're attached to, but trying to make that useful. Like we just need to actually get some of that stuff on the screen. But then how far we want to go with that with all of these different, you know, parsed subtypes remains yeah. to be seen. Yeah. Um, I could see like a very wide table of like, just take all of these and throw them all in columns. So this calculation has, or this little node bit, whatever you want to call it from a calculation had all of these attributes. It is a string. It is attached to a field. It is, you know, preceded by an operator, something like that. Like all those little things and just throw them all there together and see if you can find patterns in them. But I don't know, it's weird yeah. stuff. Cool, well, we'll dig into it a little further. And I don't know, 
what's the other piece is because I don't know how much time is being consumed by the parser, I don't know how much time I can save by saying, I don't care about operators or numbers. Because mm -hmm. 80% of the numbers that are stored in a database calculation are the number one. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, really on to, on to next steps. I think the thing I'm kind of feeling most motivated to work on next is parsing script steps. I miss, I misheard you. Did you say layout objects in FM comparison? <laughs> is that what you said? And oddly, I'm actually getting closer. <laughs> um, Script really steps is just a pointer to layout objects. <laughs> Good reference. Well, I, I was actually thinking to myself, it's like, I, maybe I should work on layout objects next. And I was like, if I say I want to work on layout objects in FM perception next, Joe's going to kill me. <laughs> I might need to start adding like subliminal messages to the UI. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just to nudge you into working on my pet feature. Yeah. It, it, for the most part, it's kind of a momentum thing. I've got so much momentum behind this right now and mm -hmm. getting at least in some areas a little bit ahead of you is helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I have this feeling that I'm not nearly as far ahead of you as I might hope. But... <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my stuff. A lot of good stuff yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um, a lot of progress. I, I periodically get these requests from people like, so when do you think it's going to come out? <laughs> no idea, dude. <laughs> no earthly clue. Like just the, the, I'm making really good progress on a, absolutely massive problem space there's <sighs> yeah the only thing i have to share about it so far like if somebody wants more information i can take a picture of my my footprints in the snow from when i was taking a walk thinking about it but that's the <laughs> only information you're going to get at this stage it's too early it's like i'm driving 200 miles an hour and it's fantastic but we're driving to the sun yeah it's take a while. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on? So lots of FM perception stuff. Um, made some decent progress in the UI and still have a lot of work to do. My brain has been resisting this one problem that I'm generally calling history mode, which is how to keep track of where the user has been as they're navigating around the app and how to get back there. And just doing that in terms of routing is easy, but repopulating the data for those UIs is the trickier part and trying to figure out how all of that should work um, in tandem with another feature where we're doing some stuff that web UIs don't typically do. Like one of the things we wanna do, we don't know if this will make it in the shipping version, but when you're on a list of things, so you're looking at a list of tables and you click on one to go to that table's detail, we want that detail view to kind of mimic the behavior that FileMaker detail views 
do where you're on a record in a found set and you can move between those records without having to navigate back to the list view. Um, and that's not really how most web UIs work. <laughs> um, no? No. I mean, it's basically just paging single records, but it's a weird, you know, most, particularly like, you know, blog engines, something like that, you wouldn't just load every article and allow the users to page through them. You would load them one at a time every time you, you click next. So we're not necessarily loading all of the data for those detail views, but we do have to be able to, like when we click on that row in the, on the list view, we need to get minimal information from the table. And the mm -hmm. part of this feature requirement is saying, give me what is currently in the table and the tables are user filterable and user searchable. So if the user, if there are 200 tables and they constrain it down to 20 tables that when I click on that record to go to the detail view, I should be in a found set of 20 records and then I should be able to page between those 20 records. Um, probably won't do any kind of unfiltering or additional filtering at that level. I think you would just mm -hmm. go back in this view to do that stuff. But yeah. so trying to get that stuff to work with the history mode um, while at the same time doing this very abstractly where I only have a handful of layouts I can even navigate to. So it's been kind of a, a weird game where I have to like make a new window, go into dev mode, load some data, and very carefully click on this row. Not that one, because that <laughs> one doesn't have anywhere to go to. And okay, now click on this table. Not that one, because that one doesn't have any data yet. And like, it's just like, I need to populate more of these views so I don't have to be so careful about where I'm clicking. But, but yeah, my brain has not wanted to work on that problem. So I've just done, instead I've got some, some of the, work done on how detail views work, which mm -hmm. is a weird level of, of abstraction. <laughs> I'm using two different ways of abstracting code in view because I'm lazy. <laughs> but one of them is the detail view has a very complex flexbox layout of exactly how this thing is gonna work. And I didn't wanna just repeat that on 30 different pages. So I made that a component and gave it named slots so the slots are a view feature where you can say anything that felt when I pass in a template tag with this name, put the contents in this area of the document. So basically a, a templating system. And you can have as many of those in, in a component as you need. And this component is only UI, it has no, no script tag. There's no logic, nothing happening. It's just a little bit of HTML markup. And when you look at that component, it's just a couple of divs and some Flexbox stuff and some anchoring and things like that. So every detail view uses that component to set itself up. Then the bits that go into the slots are like the a list of buttons for the vertical tab and then each tab content in another slot and then you know the layout name, the layout type, that type of thing. And uh, all the, be, all the behavior driving those controls is in a mixin, which is another abstraction layer that Vue has. So I could put this stuff in the base component, but it seemed too tightly coupled there when I wanted to have a little bit more flexibility. Um, so there's like a vertical tab control that I made for these layouts and all the logic to drive that is in the mixin. So there's, I think it's called detail view helper, something like that. So every one of these detail views imports the component and uses the component to 
kind of structure the page and then imports the mixin and uses the functions from the mixin to drive the page. And then the content that's going into the various tabs, it's also all in components elsewhere. So when you look at a detail view, you see a, you see more import lines than other code. Like it's just importing a bunch of data and then using it and, and putting it all together. But it, it took a couple of weeks to kind of work out how all of that's going to work. And it's probably still going to change a little bit, but yeah, that's what I've been working on instead of that more annoying problem. Um, so yeah. So the other thing that I have been working on is not much of anything. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about burnout because I definitely started feeling that way last week or really the last couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past on this show and in previous shows, but Dave and I, neither of us is particularly good at stopping work until we have to stop work. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't have any experience with burnout. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think, I don't know if, it, if burnout's exactly the right term, but it falls into the same category of things where I think a lot of what's happening with me lately is just been in autopilot too much. Like anyone who knows me, I'm a very routine person. Um, and those routines help me get a lot of things done, but sometimes I can kind of fall asleep to the routine and just go through the motions of things without actually getting the benefit of the routine. And that's kind of what I feel like I've been doing last couple of weeks it probably doesn't have anything to do with a nearly year long global pandemic and almost <laughs> constant isolation and stuff like that. Probably that probably doesn't have anything to do with it. But I, uh, I got to say that in general, I've been nothing but impressed by your and, and, and jealous yeah. of your ability to design a process for getting work done and then work that process. Mm-hmm and get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. Like that that whole thing just my brain doesn't work that way. But I really wish it did mm -hmm. a lot. It, it, yeah. It's actually kind of reassuring to find that that can break down from time to time because if not there's no point to me. Uh, we just need you. Yeah. Yeah, it I mean it breaks down from time to time. And the thing that helps me kind of get it back on track is just to change it. And so what I've been doing, I think says around 2015 is what I loosely call the block based schedule where I've carved my day up into different blocks. And just when I'm kind of preparing for my week, I decide what I'm doing in each block. Each block is around three hours, a little bit less, a little bit more depending on the day. Um, and around the same time I started that block-based schedule, I also started working really early in the morning. So I've always been a morning person. Like I I will, without an alarm, I will wake up at like six o'clock. Um, with an alarm, I'll wake up between five and 6.30. Like if I actually intend to do that. But without an alarm, I'll just get up at six for no particular reason. So I've always been a morning person and I'm always, I'm one of those weird people who is, when I wake up, I'm like completely alert and want to work on or think about complicated things. And before I got into programming, I would just get up and read philosophy books and read history and just kind of stuff that wasn't really 
useful, but it was intellectually interesting. Um, when I started my business, I decided to just get up and start working. And initially that started with like, I'm going to put the reading aside and focus on learning some new stuff, like learning programming concepts, things like that. And then that just turned into getting up and working every day. And then getting up and working at five in the morning or six in the morning has some benefits of like no one else is working. So no one's trying to get a hold of me. No one's emailing me or trying to call me. Like I have plenty of consulting customers that I provide maintenance and support and you know, just general availability to, and they don't have that availability at that time of day. So I can get some really good code done. Um, so generally speaking, I really like that, but it has a tendency to, like I have a tendency to just kind of fall into a rut where I just get up and kind of work for about the same amount of time without necessarily measuring any other aspect of the work. Like how productive was it? What did I really get done? Or was it a lot of just kind of busy work? Um, and then the rest of the day, particularly since I've not been able to work very long shifts the last couple of years because of my arms, I end up working, you know, four to six hours in the morning. And then I get to one or two in the afternoon and I can either just kind of do nothing or do, you know, reading and video games or side project stuff. But none of the stuff that really feels productive, which I shouldn't need to feel productive, but there's still a part of me like, oh, it's two in the afternoon. I should be doing something useful. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Protestant work ethic. Yeah. So I don't know. I, what I'm going to do for an undefined period of time is just change my schedule up. So rather than getting up and working first thing in the morning, I'm going to go back to what I did when I had a job, which was get up in the morning and do some exercise, spend some time reading, do a little meditation or, or thinking, quiet time, take a walk, that kind of stuff. Have two to three hours every morning that I can just spend doing things that I enjoy that help me think and help me get into a healthier place before work. And I did this for years when I worked for other people and I just kind of stopped doing it when I started working for myself. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to be just this week or for a couple of weeks or if I'll stick to it permanently. It'll probably be you know, a, a temporary thing where I'll go back to the morning schedule at some point because there's a lot of benefits I get from that. Um, but at the same time, it could just, I don't know, we'll, I don't know. We will see. It'll just be something I'll have to kind of play by ear. But uh, I started that this weekend, um, obviously without the work this weekend. That's another thing I'm doing is I'm not particularly good about taking weekends. I'm good at taking weekends off of work or paid work, but then I end up just working on side project stuff the whole time. And that's still work. And for the time being, I'm setting all my side projects aside. So all the WebXR stuff I want to do, I'm just not even working on right now. And I think part of this burnout phenomenon is related to that because I've been making really slow progress. And particularly the way I've been working on it has been like, you know, four to six hours a day on consulting work. So doing stuff for Dave or one of my other customers. And then 
after lunch, spend some time working on the WebXR stuff. And every day I'm running into barriers, getting stuck on stuff. And it, it's been this kind of this weird dichotomy where I'm doing really good work in the morning and then failing in the afternoon. But in some, I feel like the entire day was a failure because I ended on a failure. And that's just not a good way to work. No. Because um, it basically, I, I realized like, you know, I, I have a little journal where I kind of keep track of each day, things I'm working on and how I'm feeling. And like the past six weeks, like every day has ended on a downer. I'm like, for no reason, oh. like I'm doing really good work over here. <laughs> and I'm beating myself up over this, this hobby project. <laughs> yeah. So the side project stuff is going to go on the back burner for now. And I think when I want to get back into it, rather than treat it as, you know, nights and weekend side project at first, I'm just going to have to take some time off of other projects. So say, Dave, sorry, I'm not available this week or these days and say that to all my other customers and just like, I'm going to spend n number of days getting a firm grasp of how to work with these systems and getting some of the core features built before I turn it back into something that I can tinker with in, in my downtime. So yeah, the the schedule change is probably the biggest thing um, in terms of what I'm doing to try to combat this. And the weirdest part will be like just working all day because I've kind of trained myself to start goofing off in the afternoon. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I'm also like while I'm scheduling myself, you know, relatively nine to five or more like nine to three schedule, it's not necessarily about how many hours I work because I don't charge anybody by the hour. Dave doesn't get a certain number of hours per of me per month. He gets me to write code. And there can be really good days where I get a lot of work done, where I make a lot of progress in a project where I only work one or two hours, but the rest of that time is basically spent thinking or solving those problems. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really like about running my own business is I don't, I don't particularly beat myself up about stuff like that, where, you know, the last couple of places I worked, it was the companies were built around billable time. So everything was based on, how many minutes did you spend on this thing? How many mm -hmm. hours have you worked on it? You know, we talked about our week in terms of number of hours available. And I just don't really think like that anymore. So generally speaking, I'm, I'm working a daytime schedule, but it's basically from nine o'clock until I've had it up to here <laughs> or until I've just had it or can do no, no more. So yeah, that's what's going on with Joe. Well, sounds like a plan. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing what comes of it yeah probably i mean i'll definitely do it this week in terms of the new schedule in terms of how long that schedule lasts maybe this week and next week or a month or so i guess we'll see in a couple of weeks but yeah the the thing that is also kind of nice is getting back to reading um i've always been a heavy reader and i've stopped reading the last couple of years because of the problems with my hands and my neck but i've recently kind of figured out that it doesn't seem to matter what i do i'm just going to be in pain so i might as well do <laughs> things that anyway yeah um so i'm going to do the things that i like rather than trying to minimize the things i like to minimize the pain so you know getting up and reading for an hour and a half in the morning 
is a pretty good way to start the day in my opinion.